Welcome to Tammy's Ferrocino Journal Club Casino Podcast, hosted by Tammy Ferrocino. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to Perf Web number 80, day one. What a uh, what an incredible and this today, of course, is no, it's not Perf Web 80. This is Tammy Sparacino's Journal Club. What happened? Oh, it goes into that intro. Okay, so yeah, so I, I'm your host, Joe Basha, and I'm sitting in for Tammy Sparacino today. Uh, so I'm going to do my very best to do the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club justice uh, because she is really busy today doing two cases and I don't have to do any cases because I'm here with you. So I, I think I get the, I think I got the better deal. Okay, anyway, with all of that said, what a great time we had on Saturday. If you didn't watch that program, our special program with uh, Dr. Uh, Katuni uh, from uh, Thailand, that was just Tabby. I just have to call her Tabby, okay? Um, I can't even begin, you know, I, I try pronouncing those Thai names and words that I just butcher them all the time. But what an incredible story of a person who became a perfusionist, practiced for eight years, and then went into uh, get her doctorate in, I had a bachelor's, went and got her doctorate uh, in physiology. Um, and uh, her mentor, Dr. Navar, who I think is gonna be joining us, I'm gonna reach out to him, and he called in, and great conversation, and they're working on uh, some very interesting research on renal uh, autoregulation, and you know we're very concerned about renal uh, uh, injury, kidney injury during uh, cardiopulmonary bypass and ECMO. So I think that uh, the information that we get from him is gonna really help us all in our practices. So I'm very much looking forward to collaborating with Tabby and with Dr. Navarro, well, Dr. Tabby and Dr. Navarro both um, uh, over this. You know, perfusionists, we all, I mean, look, Guyton's physiology book is incredible, right? And of course, Dr. Navarro is Dr. Tabby's mentor and Dr. Guyton was Dr. Navarro's mentor. And we all have read that book uh, many times and referenced it many times in our practices uh, because it has such incredible information on it. And certainly, I think Guy Dr. Guyton is probably one of the most well-known and, and uh, recognized experts in physiology, both the dad, the original Dr. Guyton, and then his son, who also became a uh, uh, a, a doctor of uh, physiology. Um, so anyways, I got to do some opening remarks, which is, you know, what we normally have to do. Uh, and uh, uh, one of these days, I'm going to come up with something different. But you can reach us by uh, going to contact at perfusioneducation.com. Uh, you can have a call in to our call in number. And if you want to contact us, you know, at that previous email, do so and just, you know, look, I mean, uh, 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 you want to be a part of the program, you have a subject, you just want to discuss something, you want to give a compliment, uh, no complaints allowed, um, but if you, criticisms, I mean, certainly constructive criticism, we're very open to, and we want to do the best job that we can for you at the end of the day. So any input is very much appreciated by us. Call in number, you want to be live on the show, feel free to do that. Uh, you can check out our scroll bar, which will usually plays through the entire program, and that has our contact, our social media, uh, the call-in number as well. So everything that you would need to reach out to us, whether live right now or uh, later on, is down on that scroll bar that you see going across there. Uh, I want to talk a moment. Uh, we haven't done that about our MediWeb app. Our MediWeb app uh, has two new updates to it, so uh, and I'm very proud of it and very happy with it. Uh, and I, I do need to clarify, because we've gotten some feedback, that all of the things in the MediWeb app are, yes, are individually, you can find them online in various different places. But what we've done, the whole point of the app, 
is to tailor it so that it is appropriate and easy to use for a perfusionist doing a case, all of the information you would need without having to go to multiple different sites or different uh, categories, it's all right there for you, as well as for ECMO. And of course, it has a lot of different things on there's the bigger app, Critical Care Perfusion app, uh, which is appropriate for perfusionists, nurses, critical care docs, uh, nurse practitioners, of course, PAs, ECMO specialists, respiratory therapists, uh, pretty much anybody. And uh, there's a section in it on the IV uh, rate calculator, but that's also, that's incorporated in the bigger app, but it also exists in the smaller app that is only that. And uh, so you can get one for yourself and you can also get one. And this one's $2.99, the other one is 99 cents. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous deal. And uh, as I said, I'm very proud of the app, but we have two new updates, so check it out. And uh, we're very happy with it. We're gonna continue to update it so that, and those updates are free. So you buy it one time and it's gonna be good for you uh, forever. Um, PerfWeb Podcasts, you can go to any of the popular streaming, Podbean or uh, Spotify or whatever, Google, whatever your podcast platform of choice is, search PerfWeb and you can listen to these programs either, I don't know if they can do it live, I know you can do it later and uh, listen to the various dip different episodes uh, if you choose to do that. But of course, all of our material lives on YouTube and it's all free and uh, you only pay if you need the CEUs. And uh, I think that that's something that's very important. We're all here to learn from each other. And uh, every time we have like the program we had on Saturday and we have multiple people here, I really learn a lot from this. I learn more from doing this program than I think anybody out there will ever learn from me. And uh, it's, uh, it's very uh, uh, rewarding for me and it feeds my curiosity. And I think most perfusionists have a level of curiosity that endures through your career. It's why we got into the profession to start with and is what helps to keep us advancing and doing the best that we can uh, in this profession and for our patients. Okay, so uh, you told me to go to camera one, is that right? So I'll go to camera one. And now I'm gonna give, let's roll the Tammy Sparacino, uh Journal Club uh, intro and then I'm ready to go. You did? Oh, I'm sorry, I missed that. Okay, so which camera do I do, do you want me to focus on today? Okay, I'm ready for one. I'm ready to go to the slides. Okay, perfect. Okay, so the talk today uh, is a uh, subject that I think is very interesting. Now, I, would, I, had, I think we had planned a different topic, but uh, this topic is, is relatively close. Uh, the previous topic was gonna be preoperative stroke is not a predictor of post-operative stroke, or patients that had previous stroke is not a predictor of post-operative stroke following uh, open heart surgery. Uh, but I didn't feel like I had enough time to work on that. I felt like this would be a better choice. It's also one of Tammy's journal clubs that was planned for the future. So I'm substituting it, if you don't mind. And the title comes out of a SIO in 2022, Monitoring of Cerebral Oxygen Saturation in interhospital transport of patients receiving extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So patients on ECMO being transferred from point A to point B, not within the hospital, from, but from a hospital to another hospital and utilizing cerebral nears, cerebral oxygen saturation uh, uh, to, uh, to help uh, in monitoring the patient to make sure that we're, you know, transporting the patient in the safest way possible and not having any uh, neural or cerebral ischemic events. Comes out of the Department of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care Medicine, University Hospital of Bonn in Bonn, Germany. And the uh, primary author is uh, Jens Christian Schwe. Um, I believe that's how you pronounce the name. So if I butchered that, I apologize. 
their abstract is as follows. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, in acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, is used to achieve oxygenation and protect uh, lung ventilation, or to go to protective lung ventilation, mechanical ventilation specifically. Near-infrared spectroscopy, otherwise known as NEARS, we're very familiar with that, measures cerebral regional tissue oxygenation, which we describe as RSO2, and may contribute to patient safety during inter-hospital transport under ECMO support. These uh, authors evaluate, or these investigators uh, evaluated 16 adult ARDS patients undergoing uh, inter-hospital ECMO transport by measuring regional saturations uh, of the uh, brain before and after initiation of ECMO support and continuously during the transport. To compare peripheral oxygenation saturation measurement with RSO2, both parameters were analyzed. NEARS monitoring for initiation of ECMO and intra-hospital transport under ECMO support was feasible, and there was no significant difference in the percentage of achievable valid measurements over time between cerebral RSO2 and standard SpO2, or peripheral saturation monitoring. No change in cerebral RSO2 was observed before 77%, and after initiation of ECMO support, uh, NEARS for cerebral uh, RS2 measurement is feasible during nor uh, uh, after initiation. NEARS for uh, RSO2, regional RSO2 measurement is feasible during ECMO initiation and interhospital transport. Achievable of valid measurement of cerebral RSO2 was not superior to SpO2 in, and uh, in distinct patients such as shock measurement of cerebral RSO2 may contribute to improvement of patient safety during interhospital ECMO transport. So, mouthful there. Why was this paper published? What, vis-a-vis -vis what is the significance of the study? So, really what you're, you know, you think about it, we're going to take a patient who has a serious enough decompensation of their condition to warrant being placed on ECMO, and we're going to transport that patient via air or ambulance, of the ground or air, uh, from this hospital to that hospital. And uh, there's various different distances and times associated with that, which I'll get into as we move down through this uh, study. But uh, can we do it safely or can we improve the safety? Because one of the things I've learned uh, in dealing with cardiac surgery patients or critically ill patients in general is whenever you move the patient is when the breakdown of continuity of care breaks down uh, very rapidly. And it's, and, it's, and it's amazing to me how we have taken patients from the operating room to the ICU. We left the operating room, they looked great. We had no issues with transporting them at all that we noticed. Get them to the ICU, hook them up, and they're either coding or their pressure's low or their SAT's low or something else is going on. So we all recognize, I think, in this, in this profession that transporting patients around when they are on advanced life support mechanisms or, or, or technologies is carries significant risk. And how can, we, how can we mitigate that risk? I think that's really what we're looking at here. So what problems to be solved? Well, the biggest problem, of course, to be solved would be uh, uh, for there to be a, 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 an anoxic event, a cerebral anoxic event or hypoxic event that was not recognized. So that's really, uh, if we go back to that, the problem to be solved or problem 
there's probably others, but I think that's the most significant. Uh, the brain is extremely sensitive to hypoxia and uh, everything we can do to protect that is going to be uh, uh, well needed and, uh, and significant to the overall safety and care of that patient. So this is one of their tables and this is basically a list of uh, all of their patients. And I read this and uh, it's interesting because I'm using these slides for a talk that I'm giving at Texas Heart to end our 50th anniversary, which is coming up. And if you haven't seen that yet, please check out the THI, uh, 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 THI Perfusion Conference, Texas Heart Institute's uh, Perfusion Conference. It's their 50th year anniversary. A lot happening there. They're gonna be announcing a new scholarship uh, for Sal Greco. Um, and uh, that's gonna be very, I think, interesting. There's gonna be some really good talks and some very, uh, very uh, bright people there. So you may wanna tune in and that's coming up, I think, June 3rd, 4th and 5th, or 2nd, 3rd and 4th, I can't remember exactly, but go online, THI Perfusion Conference 2022 and check it out and get yourself signed up. Good CEUs, um, I think it's very worthwhile doing that. Uh, but anyway, here are their patients and I just wanna go through them because I do a lot of stuff with all of these patients and I really noticed something stood out to me. There were 16 patients listed on the left, patient one through patient 16. And we see their age, their BMI, the days on ECMO, the cause of their, their ARDS, their outcome, and then their SAPS2 score, their Apache2 score, the distance they traveled, time of transportation in minutes, and time of total monitoring. And that would be with the uh, cerebral oximetry. All of the patients were cannulated either bifemorally, so femoral vein, femoral vein, one cannula higher than the other in order to have both drainage and return, the drainage being the access being lower and the return being higher up into the right atrium. Uh, and if they were unable to achieve the oxygenation that they wanted to achieve, then they added a right IJ catheter and went V-VV. So uh, that was the technique for all of these patients. But you notice in this that there are 16 patients. Eight of them are highlighted in red because I, what I did was highlighted all of the non-survivors. So they had a 50% uh, survival or a 50% uh, mortality, depending on how you wanna look at it, uh, in this patient population. And I think it's very interesting because we've been debating this uh, disparity in ECMO outcomes now for quite some time. So I thought this was interesting. I wanna kind of go through these patients. The first patient, patient one, 60 years old, had a BMI of 23. So that's a very slight person for us. Again, this was done in Germany, uh, where in Europe, you tend to not have the, the people quite as big as we have here in the uh, United States, especially in uh, southeastern Texas. Um, they were on ECMO for 16 days, viral pneumonia. They were a survivor. Uh, they were transported 105 kilometers and there, it took them two hours to do so. And they had a total of 268 hours of total monitoring. Next patient was 37. And you know, on its own merit, we get pretty nervous when we see a 60 year old patient that we're gonna be putting on ECMO, depending on their overall condition. But that's starting to get kind of you know high up there, but this patient was a survivor. Uh, two weeks on ECMO and a couple of days on top of it, so not bad. 37 year old, BMI of 29, uh, still not achieving the obese category, overweight category for at 29, but not obese. Uh, 13 days on ECMO, again, viral pneumonia, survivor. Um, patient three was 64 years old. Uh, BMI of 28, ECMO days 15, that was a bacterial pneumonia, those, you know, it was a non-survivor. Um, the next three are actually, patient four was 58 years old, 25 BMI, 23 days on ECMO, atypical pneumonia. Patient five, 66 years old, 31 uh, BMI, 14 days on ECMO, bacterial pneumonia. Uh, their next survivor was 59, had viral pneumonia. 
seven was a bacterial pneumonia, 67 years old, and they put that patient on ECMO. Again, here, you know, we'll do it, but we're thinking really a 67, and what's so surprising about this is, you know, I, I do believe Germany, I do believe Germany is a single payer. It's Europe, I'm assuming they are, and I may be wrong about that. Uh, so if I am wrong, I apologize. But, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people perceive European countries, Canada, uh, other places that you're 67 years old, you're not getting all of these advanced technologies. But clearly at 67 years old, it would give us pause uh, but that patient was a non-survivor. Next patient, eight, also a non-survivor, 55, 29, viral pneumonia. Next patient was a viral pneumonia, 41 years old, a little younger, a little smaller, 19 days on ECMO, survived. And you can see the distances traveled were anywhere between 120 uh, kilometers to uh, as short as 40, 30 kilometers. So a wide range there. But I think it's very interesting. And then here's a person with uh, antisynthetase uh, syndrome. They were 44 years old. They were on ECMO the longest, 81 days, uh, but also a non-survivor. And of course, antisynthetase syndrome, you frequently see interstitial lung disease, autoimmune type of thing. And uh, that patient was unable to, uh, to survive. And uh, that's unfortunate there. But you can look through the rest of them. And it's very interesting. 50%, and I've seen studies that reflect 60% survival, 70% survival. I've seen some that reflect 90% survival. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at their selection criteria, trying to figure out what is, where's the differentiator. You will see that n none of the survivors were over six, 60 years old was the, was the, the highest one. That was a viral pneumonia, um, relatively small in size, 23 BMI, um, relatively short ECMO run. And we can get a little more into the, uh, per, the, the various different, the conditions of these patients before we start drawing conclusions because I think that's uh, going to be very interesting. Um, here we see the uh, NEARS before ECMO and after ECMO. So, so the categories are the, 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 the uh, non-shaded bars uh, with boxes with whiskers are uh, the uh, before ECMO and then the uh, gray uh, filled bars are after ECMO. And you look at NEARS, you look at uh, peripheral saturation, pulse oximetry, and you look at drawn blood gases. And you see that there is a slight increase in the regional saturation with the NEARS uh, uh, going on after ECMO than before. You see uh, an increase in the SpO2 or the pulse ox peripheral saturation after ECMO before, but you see a remarkable difference, uh, which is very statistically significant after ECMO with the actual blood gas saturation. So that made the biggest difference, which, you know, reflects, I think, the differences in reading a blood gas versus using, because we see that, of course, with pulse oximetry, and you can see it with NEARS. You can have, you know, differences in those numbers. Very good for trending, and they're very important devices to use. They're standards, I think, in cardiac surgery, certainly, uh, and other major surgeries, but uh, especially the uh, NEARS now, I think, has become that standard. Uh, but you notice that the difference in the two is a lot less with those two. And that can be a result of many different things because of the way these technologies actually work. And we have to consider that and look into it and understand it in order to uh, use these devices in the most effective manner. So here again, uh, you know, what happened? What was the cause of death for these patients? And again, these numbers reflect the exact same from the first uh, table that I showed you. Uh, patient three through five died from liver failure, multi-organ failure, and intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, seven and eight died from liver failure and refractory pulmonary bleeding. 
patient 10 died from refractory septic shock, uh, as well as number 12, and patient 16 died from multi-organ failure. Uh, of those patients, two of them, of the patients that died, two of them were able to be weaned from ECMO. Uh, the others were not, but my suspicion is they got weaned from ECMO and were off ECMO for a relatively short period of time if their condition was multi-organ failure and uh, they had uh, intracranial hemorrhage. And then here, monitoring of cerebral oxygen saturation, the ventilation or the ventilator characteristics and blood gases before and after beginning of ECMO therapy. This is a very important slide. And let me see uh, if I want to do the highlighter because I like doing that. Yeah, there you go. So we look at uh, these patients, and here's your PF ratios. They range from 95, 110, 87. Look at this patient here. This patient, again, the highlighted ones are non-survivors, all right? So I keep making it really easy for myself and hopefully you too to follow along with this. But I, I, they put this patient on ECMO with a PF ratio of 294. And remember, this is VV ECMO. Now, I do think 294 is, you know, abnormal, but... We have, uh, here's a patient that had a, 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 a PF ratio of 460. The normally, the ones that we see are here, 71, 87, uh, 71 I'm sorry, uh, 87. That's pretty common for us to see as well. 49, certainly very common. But you can see, you can't say just the PF ratio being better necessarily or worse was the contributor to the patient's uh, failure to survive. And then if you look here, the peak pressures, 35, 36, 31, 36. So these are some pretty stiff lungs. Um, that's not uncommon for us to see. PEEP levels were between 10, 12, 16, 18, 15, kind of what we see pretty routinely. Uh, tidal volumes in uh, milliliters per kilogram, you can see here that that patient, look at this down to five, down to four, uh, and that was a survivor, actually. Uh, this was down to two, a non-survivor, six. Uh, so again, you know, even the patient that had uh, relatively decent tidal volume, although very high peak pressures and PEEP, um, was, uh, was not a survivor. Um, here's our pHs. You can see this patient uh, that did survive was grossly acidotic, had a reasonable PO2, but look at their PaCO2. Uh, you keep following this over, their lactate levels were not run. Uh, this patient here that had a pretty good PF ratio had a lactate of nine. Uh, they all had reasonable hemoglobins that we can see here. And after uh, ECMO, you can see that their pHs uh, stabilized quite nicely on uh, most of these patients. Their PaO2s and PCO2s looked a lot better, although this, this patient re, uh, actually remained uh, somewhat hypercarbic uh, and their pH was low, but they did survive. I'm sure that that was a sweep gas issue. Uh, the lactates uh, on this patient here was very, very, very high, 13.5, but they were a survivor. So I think you see patterns, but you also have outliers, whether it be BMI or whether it be lactate. And we talk about a lot of these things all of the time that various markers we say are an indicator of poor outcomes. And um, having a lactate level of 13.5, I would say is very concerning, uh, but that was one of the survivors. And I think that's very important to recognize that there may be patterns and there may be predictors of poor outcomes, but there's always going to also be outliers. I think that's a very important concept for us to recognize and consider when we're selecting patients for ECMO. Because at the end of the day, when I hear a, 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 an organization, a group, a hospital, a, a team, whatever, has VV ECMO survival of 90%, 
80%, maybe even 70%. I start thinking they, are, they have very tight selection criteria. And when I review their data and look at their pace, their selection criteria, I recognize pretty early on that, that, that what I thought is accurate. So I can look at a title and say, they're gonna have very tight selection criteria. Those that have much wider selection, except more, uh, except sicker patients, um, uh, tend to have poorer outcomes. That is, uh, I, I think that bears out in all of the data that you review when you're looking at, uh, at, at outcomes, survival with ECMO, whether it be VA or VV. They are very different, but I do think that that's the case. Um, now, when we look at patients uh, for decannulation, and in this case, we're only gonna look at, sur at survivors because uh, if you have, they only have two patients in the non-survivors that they actually weaned, um, but uh, you can see that of, even of ones that did not survive, they started out looking pretty good, which tells me that they were very effective with their ECMO and they were likely, although it's not in the article, it doesn't elucidate it, but my suspicions are that they were using very effective uh, CRRT or CVVH is what I prefer to call it to manage homeostasis and have a normal acid-base balance and having a normal electrolyte uh, uh, profile and clearing the lactate and all of those metabolites and all those various things. But of the survivors, uh, blood gases before decannulation, they looked pretty good. Um, if you look through the entire list and that's gonna be over here. So these patients were ready and then you look at the ones that survived and 24 hours later, uh, their blood gases actually continue to look pretty decent. I do see uh, a consistent uh, 61, 63, uh, what seems to be hypercarbic uh, state in patient one, their PACO2 was 84. Um, so uh, I'm not sure what happened to this patient maybe a week later, uh, uh, but uh, it wasn't uh, described in the article. But uh, having uh, 7.2284, they may be able to eventually compensate for that. And this is one of the things, if you look here, the uh, blood gas uh, before decannulation uh, was 38 on this patient and then jumped to 84. So this is all respiratory. And that was one of the theories that I saw, and I wanted to describe that real quick, uh, down at the medical center here in Texas where I was covering some ECMOs. And um, what they were doing was really lowering the sweep and letting the patient become metabolically compensated for a PCO2 as high as 80 and 90, so that when they did wean from bypass, their pH didn't just plummet and their PCO2 go, go all the way up. So that was their, their, their weaning process was to wean the sweep before the, the uh, FiO2 uh, to get that as low as possible and give the patient time to metabolically compensate for what was going to be likely a, uh, a rest of their life hypercarbic uh, state. And I thought that was very interesting. So in their uh, discussion, the primary point of interest in this study, and this is the author speaking, of course, was the analysis of cerebral RSO2, regional saturation, in the context of ECMO support therapy and transportation. Monitoring regional saturation, oxygen saturation, was feasible and reliable compared with SpO2 as a parameter of standard monitoring. Why? Okay, those are very good. So I'm, uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's get through this, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Our results are in contrast to Credit et al., which is a different article, who were able to detect a significant increase in regional saturation in a cohort of 15 patients during the initiation of ECMO 
without subsequent inter-hospital transport. If you remember, we went back and looked at that, those bars with whiskers or those boxes with whiskers that you didn't see a big jump in regional saturation or even uh, uh, peripheral saturation, though you did with the blood gases. But in Credle, they did see that. So that was a difference and that they were pointing that out. Um, in this study, the ob observation of an increased RSO2 was explained as an effective increase in arterial oxygenation. An increase in cerebral RSO2 in our cohort was seen only in some patients and there was no correlation to hypoxemia. Due to the low number of patients, this study is insufficient to explain the different findings. Fair enough. You know, an N of 16 is, is, uh, is, is certainly not considered definitive scientifically, but there's a lot of anecdotal power to this. Uh, and the authors go on to say, or these investigators, Credle et al. showed in their retrospective study that decreases in PaCO2 in non-hypoxic patients is accompanied by a decrease in cerebral regional saturation. Very important. This was interpreted as an effective decrease in cerebral blood flow in patients with chronic hypercaptic respiratory uh, 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 type of uh, conditions. So when you blow off the CO2, you have a big drop in PCO2 from your, your current condition and you are a chronically hypercaptic patient and you go on ECMO and your CO2 drops down because of your sweep gas acutely like that and your PCO2 drops, your regional cerebral saturations will also fall because you're going to constrict the cerebral blood, flow, uh, blood, uh, blood vessels and blood flow to the brain. And that's reflected in that study. It's something that you know we think about a lot when we're dealing with uh, patients, whether you're using deep hypothermia and circulatory arrest, to use alpha stat or pH stat, pediatrics, of course, they, they, they believe in, uh, and I always get the two confused, pH stat or alpha stat. They, 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 they read their PCO2 at temperature versus being corrected to 37 degrees. So whichever of those two it is, I can never keep up with that or remember that. Um, but I wanted to go back to the uh, 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 monitoring of RSO2 being feasible and reliable compared to SpO2, and there's a lot of reasons why that is. How many times have we been doing cases and the, the pulse ox isn't working because you're on vasopressors and your finger is, is already blue from just the vasopressors and you're expecting this to work, so we put it on the ear, we do that. Um, we try to do all of these various things and we switch it to the other hand. We put it on the, the, the foot. We do all kinds of things to try to get the peripheral saturation meters to read. You just lose your pulsatility. It depends on pulsatility in order to be able to work. If you have increased melanin, if you have, if you're a darker skinned individual, there are actually, there's a study that uh, Tammy is gonna be talking about in one of her later uh, uh, journal clubs that talks about racial bias in, per, in peripheral or pulse oximetry readings, peripheral oxygen saturations. So there's a lot of variables that can occur. Now that will still occur with regional uh, saturation when you're using the, uh, the uh, uh, NEARS technology because what you're reading is skin, bone, and mixed because you have both arteries and veins. So it is not an arterial saturation. It really doesn't tell you what the saturation specifically of the brain is, but it does tell you regionally at a depth deep enough to incorporate what's considered the watershed area of the brain. And you have to understand at least how the technology works in order to be able to uh, uh, use it, rely on it, and, all, and, and also view it with always a critical eye because that's with every single thing we do, every technology. It can read X, but when everything else is telling you it's Y, in, and that's the experience that you need to be able to look at data and interpret it in context and in including the totality of everything else that you're looking at. That's a very important feature, I think.
So let's review, if we may, the author's conclusions here. So the authors uh, do point out some limitations, which I think we have already elucidated. The results of this study have to be interpreted with caution as there are limitations. First of all, as the authors state, this study is a single center experience and is missing a control group. Fair enough. This, although I don't necessarily think that's, a, that, that's, that's that significant. The study was intended as a descriptive study and therefore the missing control group is in our opinion tolerable. Well, I guess I should have read a little further before I gave my editorial, editorial comments. Given the underlying disease and relative rarity of interhospital ECMO transport, that's debatable depending on where you are and where are we going to go with this. I think we uh, have, I, I, I'll make some comments here about that. Just, just remind me if I forget. The number of patients in this study is low, true, making a statement and statistical calculations difficult. Technologies used in our study also have physical limitations. For example, extreme light conditions as well as skin pigmentation can disturb measurements of both methods. That's referring specifically to either SpO2 or RSO2. Artifacts caused by myoglobin in our measurements are negligible, or I'm sorry, yes, negligible when measuring transcranial cerebral oxygenation since in the case of frontal reading, only minimal muscles are within the photon pathway. That's a very important concept also because if you have uh, if you have elevated myoglobin then and you're looking through through muscle that's going to really affect uh, the number the, the, the reliability of the number but there's very little in the way of muscle between the skin of the scalp through the uh, through the cranial bone and then into the uh, into the intracranial area uh, even if in this study patients, in this study's patients, with darkly pigmented skin were excluded, skin tone could have influenced accuracy of oximeter measurements, both pulse ox and cerebral oximetry, or RSO2 and SpO2. So in conclusion, mobile NEARS devices for the measurement of RSO2 are available, they're very common now, and usage of, this, of these devices is feasible in interhospital ECMO transportation of ARDS patients. Current knowledge about the clinical significance of this technique is still insufficient. However, NEARS as an addition to standard monitoring may provide a useful tool for early detection of hypoxemia and improvement of patient safety. I agree with that statement a thousand percent. Further evaluation, of course, everybody says this, of this technique in a larger cohort is needed. Agreed. And I think that much in the same way I described um, earlier about the statistical uh, trends that we see, and when you have a very large N, you can draw some conclusions about l elevated lactate levels or, 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 hi or uh, uh, hypoalbuminemia, whatever it is being a, 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 a predictor of poor outcomes. But individually, there's always these outliers that are all over the place. And uh, I question personally, this is my opinion, I question whether or not using NEARS will, if you measured it on 5,000 patients or 20,000 patients would make a statistical difference as to the outcomes of patients being transported either intra-hospital or inter-hospital or just maybe not going anywhere and we just measured it on every patient that was on ECMO would make a statistically significant difference in survival or, uh, 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 or uh, mortality, but I think not unlike pulse oximetry being absolutely 
required during uh, any surgical procedure, um, statistically probably really doesn't make any difference, but it will save somebody. And I think that when you use NEARS uh, and regional saturation, your uh, 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 predictability of seeing a change occur is going to be much higher and there's going to always be that outlier, that individual patient that was a survivor were it not for whatever incident occurred that resulted in a uh, hypoxic or anoxic event uh, that uh, could have been avoided. So I think that's kind of my view on all of this. Uh, statistical uh, data is very, very important, um, but you have to look, put everything in context. Everything is always contextual. And are we doing it uh, to improve outcomes on a, uh, a, on a large group of patients? Or are we doing it to avoid that patient that should not have had a bad outcome uh, were it not were it were it not for us measuring uh, regional oxygen saturation uh, in the uh, in the brain using NEARS technology and uh, cerebral oximetry. So I think that's kind of my takeaway message there. The other thing I wanted to point out that uh, I, I remembered you don't have to remind me is that uh, they talk about it the 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 uncommon nature of inter-hospital transport. Um, no, that's not true. I think that that has been true, but I think as ECMO continues to advance as a useful technology uh, and, tech and therapy, we are going to get better and better at it. More and more facilities are going to be able to either initiate it and then the patient gets transported to the next level up of care or there's going to be systems in which much like there is today just on a more limited scale i think that's going to expand where centers will be able to go out regionally and pick patients up initiate ecmo and then bring the patient back um, it is not easy to take a patient who is hypoxic and acidotic and hypercarbic and on pressors. It, you know, it, transporting that patient, um, you know, just may not be doable without getting that patient on ECMO. And there's a lot of patients that fall through the cracks in community hospitals that are somewhat remote uh, where ECMO may not be offered, uh, but if we're able to get there and put that patient on ECMO and transport them, I think you're going to see more and more and more of that occur. Uh, and I think that from the early beginnings of ECMO, even just from the H1N1 uh, period when I was doing it, I've learned so much from the past uh, over the from that period of time than the next 10 years or uh, or 13 years since that pan 12, 13 years since that pandemic, um, and COVID has taught us a uh, tremendous amount. That experience is going to carry over and I think you will see ECMO being used more frequently for shorter periods of time for what we normally use it for and then also some additional things. Where I think we can get ourselves into trouble and one of the things that's always concerned me is its, uh, it's misuse. I do think there are windows of opportunity patients have before they are so uh, damaged that really all we're going to do is delay what is the inevitable. Um, and I think we have to be cautious about that. Um, so ECMO uh, usage, I think if it, if it, as we advance through this, my suspicions are it will be used sooner and for much shorter periods of time than the way we are currently uh, using this, uh, this uh, therapeutic modality. So those are my thoughts. And of course, treatments to deal with the patient's underlying condition because you have to have reversibility, uh, either transplanting organs or you're reversing their disease process uh, that's going on uh, and you have recovery and able to wean from there. So those are my thoughts. If you have, anybody has any questions, are welcome to call in. Um, 
uh, and uh, or text in. I don't see anything. Do you have anything on Facebook or Twitter? Nothing. Okay, good. Well, I, you know, I'm gonna. I'm a little early, but I don't think anybody's going to hate me for it. Um, I think I'm gonna go ahead and end this here. This was the. Should I spin the wheel? Let's spin. You know what? I want to spin the wheel. I want to thank everyone for allowing me and Tammy. I want to thank you. I hope I did a good job on the uh, journal club sitting in for you. It's difficult because it's not normally what I do. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, when you get back, um, you can write this ship. I did the best I could. But thank you for the privilege of allowing me to do that. Okay, so there's the wheel. Okay, so I'm doing this. I'm spinning this for Tammy. Tammy, let's see what you're going to get. And, oh, and then i got to spin it for, uh, for Dr. Tabby. A cup. Okay, now let's see what Tabby's going to get. You know, I really wanted it to stop on aortic dissection. For Tammy. Not for Tabby. No, I really didn't. Come on, T-shirt, T-shirt. Yes, T-shirt. Okay, so cups, and I'm going to give those tumblers that we have. Those are kind of cool. And uh, Tabby, you're going to get some T-shirts. So we know where to find you. And uh, again, the great program on Saturday, seeing Deb and Ann and Mike Brown. And we had a gr we really had a wonderful time, and uh, we need to do that again. And I will see you tomorrow with Matt Warhoover and the Vanderbilt Faculty Forum will be tomorrow. I won't be substituting for Matt, but I'll be participating. And then on Thursday, we're doing, uh, Thursday is, uh, I'm giving a uh, fireside chat on disparities in ECMO outcomes. So, you know, that's going to be, so tomorrow we actually, is gonna vac is, it's a fireside chat, but it's the Vanderbilt Faculty Forum. And then Thursday, we have a little treat for you uh, where we're going to start a new process for our fireside chats, but we're uh, we're only doing that for the ones that I do right now to see how it's received before we indulge anybody else in that. Um, also, I'll be doing it on Thursday from a remote location. Thursday is going to be interesting because anybody on the program, including myself, is not going to be coming actually from the studio, and we've worked on this technology, so I'm hoping that that... First time we're gonna test that to see um, how that works. Um, and hopefully we have invested enough in the technology that those programs uh, have the same uh, uh, functionality as these programs do. And hopefully you learn something from those. I hope you learned something from today. Uh, with that said, I will see you tomorrow bright and early at 0655 hours central time. Thank you, bye-bye.